Again, I'm thankful to be here tonight, here in this place where the Lord has been so often with us. Of course, He's in our hearts, but if our hearts are here, He's here too. I really need your prayers tonight as I try to preach. I want to say that first. Secondly, of course, thankful for all the visitors that are here to support this church and these meetings. It's been a, it's been a good time. We've had several people seeking, but it's kind of been a bad time because we've heard of no one being saved. That doesn't mean that these services are without value, but still, we, uh, we like to rejoice uh, with them that rejoice. So pray for us tonight uh, that I might preach whatever it is that the Lord wants me to preach and however it is that he wants me to preach it. If you wish to join me in the reading or follow along, it's found in the Gospel according to John <clears throat> chapter 4. And uh, beginning in verse 45, John chapter 4 and verse 45. Then when Jesus was come into Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did at Jerusalem at the feast, for they also went unto the feast. Jesus came again into Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water into wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus was come out of Judea into Galilee, he went unto him and besought him that he would come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then said Jesus unto him, Except you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The nobleman said unto him, Sir, come down, ere my child die. Jesus saith unto him, Go thy way, thy son liveth. And the man believed the word that Jesus had spoken unto him, and he went his way. And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Thy son liveth. Then inquired he of them the hour when he began to amend. And they said unto him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. So the father knew that it was the same hour in which Jesus said unto him, Thy son liveth, and he himself believed, and all his house. This again is the second miracle that Jesus did when he was come out of Judea into Galilee. And that's our reading lesson, and I'll proceed straight into the text, which is the next chapter. John chapter 5, verse 1. After this, as was the feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem... Now there is at Jerusalem by the sheep gate or market a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of impotent folk, of blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first, after the troubling of the water, stepped in, was made whole of whatever, whatsoever disease he had. I'm going to end the reading there. Probably will peach past that point. The, uh, 
a reason I read the end of chapter 4 is something that he noticed at the time that the nobleman asked him to hurry down and, and save his son's life. Now, whether he was deploring the fact or just acknowledging the fact, it makes no difference when Jesus speaks his 100% truth all the time and profitable for us to understand what he's meaning by this. He tells a person, and he's not just talking about that person. I think that's all of us. Except we see signs and wonders, we won't believe. Have you ever wondered why Jesus did so many miracles? I mean, there's reasons for it. One is this right here. People seeing the power of God and, and, and the nature of it, that it's, that it's always good for people. He didn't come, you know, bringing terrible calamities, but he, he came in meekness and love and compassion, helping everybody that wanted help. Trying to help many who did not want help and would not receive it. They needed to know that there's something, there's something else outside this world that has the power to do that which nothing in this world can do. His father gave him those works to do so that they might believe and be saved. And every one of those, those things that he did is able to be transposed into uh, the healing graces of Jesus on the human heart, regardless of what the disease was. So I have been here, I forget how long, it's been a while, a few days now, and seen many people seeking the Lord and nobody finding the Lord. And as I searched for a message, I came across verse 48. And somehow or other, you need to see signs and wonders. You need to, you know, Jesus is not here. You cannot lay your eyes upon him and see the wonderful things he did. And yet through the spirit, you can be able in your heart to see him as a God that can save you from all your trouble. So that maybe one day you could, uh, with King David, say, this poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him from all of his trouble. That's the testimony of, of truly everyone that's ever been saved. We cried to Jesus and he heard and he saved us from all our trouble. He doesn't do things halfway. And he doesn't have to be down here physically. In fact, many were down here physically that were lost and stayed that way despite witnessing these very signs and miracles. So, so it becomes at least one of the jobs of a preacher is to preach Christ doing his miracles so that somehow, maybe with the help of the Holy Spirit, they will come alive savingly in your heart and teach you to trust it's someone who is so infinitely trustworthy. He merits all of your trust. He never disappoints the heart that altogether seeks him out. Whoever comes to him as they are supposed to come with a broken heart and a contrite spirit, he will never cast them away. If you come to him that way, you will be saved. There's no mystery. It may be a mystery why God would ever do it, but he does it that way.
So, then getting into our, our text, again, a familiar passage. <clears throat> the Pool of Bethesda. There was a feast of the Jews. It's unnamed. In my opinion, it's the Feast of Purim. Just given the context of what goes before and what comes after. And also, the giving of gifts, which was required under this this feast that was not commanded by God, but came forth from the people in recognition of, of the Lord overthrowing uh, their enemy who was intent upon their complete destruction. And then it was the Lord just flipped those tables and it was their enemy that was destroyed and they were all set free. And they all said, we're going to have a feast every year at this time. It'll be two days long and we're going to celebrate. It's a party. And to this day, it's a big party. Probably not the kind of party that the original uh, start, starters of that feast had in mind. The Jews to this day uh, do a lot of drinking and a lot of partying on Purim. Well, one of the things that's required is that you give they have rules for how to do it. It's that you give gifts to one another of two kinds. And I think the Lord gives two types of gifts here while he's here. Most of the city is out having a party. But the Lord goes to a place where people are very sober-minded, reflecting upon the very serious things of life. I think he has from the Father some presentiment of where to go. He goes to uh, the place of mercy. It can mean house of mercy. It can mean place of mercy. It's both. So mercy himself goes to the place of mercy with an intention to show mercy. That's how he comes to you. You may not receive that mercy, but he comes with mercy in his heart. Now we speak terms like mercy and grace, and we just assume everybody knows what that means. Well, I think I know what it means, but I have difficulty defining it. So I went to Webster's. I I seldom do that, but I did it today. Looking up what he had to say in in the original Webster's Dictionary, and I had, it was such a long thing, I had to condense it into something that you could tolerate me reading. Mercy, that benevolence, mildness, or tenderness of heart, which disposes a person to overlook injuries or treat an offender better than he deserves. And it can only be exercised towards offenders by the offended. You know, we are taught that we are, in our very nature, enmity against God. We come into this world, it says, speaking lies. We are shapen in iniquity. We are enemies of God by our nature. We, don't, we may not mean to be, but that's where we find ourselves. That's where the scripture has us. Some of us actively... Uh, blaspheme him. I used to do that. I'm not proud of it. And we're injurious against his cause. I used to do that. And I'm ashamed of that. But nevertheless, despite 
over 40 years of offending God just about as, as willingly as I possibly could. He was disposed by the mildness of his nature, the tenderness of his heart, to have mercy upon the one who had dedicated his life to hurting the cause of Christ. Mercy means a lot to me. And there's not, uh, there's really not another word that fully, in the English language at least, that, that fully carries the meaning of mercy. Also grace. I'll look that up. It's favor, goodwill, or kindness freely given to persons who do not deserve it. Now, I just thought I'd mention that before we start talking about a house of mercy too much. So Jesus comes to the place led by the Spirit of God and possessing all the power of the Spirit. He's not like people here that occasionally get some measure of it. He has it without measure. He comes to this place intent on blessing someone. And you would think, given what it says here, there was a, there's five portents. Also, the, you know, John says there is. You know, it's a present tense verb, and he says it twice in the same verse. There is a pool. Well, and it still is. People doubted it for a while, but they dug it up and found it, and it is more or less rectangular. It has got a bridge across it, so there's a porch on each of four sides, and there's one down the middle. That's, I've looked up pictures of it. It seemed to be. And uh, so there is a pool, but there's no angel troubled in the water anymore. Not at that place. But the Holy Spirit might be here tonight. If we pray earnestly, if the saints do, it might trouble the hearts of the lost. This great multitude, I mean, it, it becomes just a, uh, I don't know how to describe it. It's a heartbreaking, it's a heartbreaking narrative. In this, on these five porches lay a great multitude of impotent folk. Now, God doesn't exaggerate. <laughs> so when he tells John, this is what it was, and John may have been there, there was a great multitude. And we're not talking about a hundred people. We're probably talking about a thousand or thousands. We don't know, whatever could fit. Such is the human condition that at any given time in the world, there is a great multitudes of impotent people. This is the result of sin. Not in every case uh, that the Lord afflicted someone because of their sin, but just the general condition of sinful man, sin, you know, when it is full grown, it brings forth death. That's about as impotent as you can get in this world. <laughs> when you're dead, you're not doing anything until, well, until later when he raises us, our bodies anyway. You guys pray for me, please. But a great multitude of impotent folk, now, children here may not know what impotent means. In this context, what it means is powerless, without any strength. They are helpless people. The particular person we're going to look at is a person immobile. He cannot move himself. 
So there's impotent people here. It talks about some of their conditions. Some are blind. Many are halt, meaning they, their gait is not right or they don't walk well. Withered. That's like dried up and, and weak and, and frail to a, to a pathetic extent, as best I can understand from it. But they were there waiting for the moving of the water because an angel would come at a certain time. I don't think that means it's on clockwork, but at certain times, the Lord would have that angel go down there and stir the water of that pool. And the first person that can get into it after it's been troubled by the angel is healed of whatever is wrong with them. I think it's completely healed of whatever is wrong with them. They are cured right then. You know, Jesus healed multitudes of people by himself through the power of God many times in the Bible. It tells about it over and over again. And he healed them all, all the sick that were brought to him. It wasn't just one, it was everybody. This angel was not given that type of mission. And, and I mean, it hasn't been there forever. It's not like we read of this angel all the way back through Jewish history. This must have been something that God placed there just to to vitalize this dead nation, this people that sat in darkness and in the region and shadow of death. He started giving them some idea that life was coming, that light was coming to them. Maybe. Whatever reason, this was going on. Imagine that you had a, 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 a brutal disease like, like blindness or lameness or, or cancer or or heart conditions or just old age, I guess. I don't know. I'd love to have one of those. And, and, and you had a chance. There was no place on earth where you could be healed. There's, there's nothing that could be done for you by a doctor. These are incurables. And you heard that if you could just get there and get in first, you've got it. Well, they were waiting. And then we get down to our subject here. A certain man was there. And it describes his condition, which had an infirmity 30 and 8 years. For, for 38 years. You children, you can't even imagine living 38 years at this point. When, when you're this tall, you, don't, you have no idea. And once you've got there, you can't imagine living another 38. Yet there's people right here that have done that as well. So <laughs> uh, I can tell you it, it just gets harder uh, to live in a body that this starts wearing out. But uh, for 38 years, this person has had this spirit of infirmity. And uh, now, I'll, I'll have to give a spoiler on it. Uh, it was because of some particular sin he had done, and he knew that. We can get that from the text if we read it carefully enough, but it's, e it's easy enough to point you to one, because in verse 14, after the Lord helps him, he says, behold, thou art made whole, sin no more, lest a worse thing come unto thee. Now, he didn't say that to everybody that he healed, he said to this man. And I think just the man's attitude also indicates a sense of guiltiness that had brought this about. I believe that the Lord brought this upon him because of a, some some great sin, and he knew it. He had reconciled himself that this is what ought to be happening to him. 
because he became, I mean, he was in the right place, but he was like listless almost. He, just, he was almost stupefied. I, I don't know how else to explain it. It's hard to explain his actions. But uh, I do want you to know that the Lord has the freedom to punish you in this world for sins. He does. And that's whether you lost or saved. Saved people can do things that offend God enough where they're going to be punished for it. It could happen in this world or in the world to come. If you're lost, you're going to be certainly punished for sin. But, you know, we need to be careful not just to try to live right. Not that living right is going to get you to heaven, but just so not to offend God so bad that he, he brings something bad on us. I lost a daughter in 2005, just overnight. Just went to bed and got a call at, I don't know, 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. And it was, uh, she was 19. It was out of nowhere. Let me tell you something. When that happens, you, uh, you go over everything you've done. Did I cause this? Am I responsible for this? You lose the will to live. If you're like me, you beg the Lord to take you out of the world. It's a terrible thing. But understand, and my point is, we should be very circumspect in what we do in this life. Don't think that the only punishment is hell. I didn't mean to get into that, but I think it's important. So uh, this man for 38 years had had this problem. I don't think he had been at the pool for 38 years. But for 38 years, someone's had to carry him about or do whatever. He can't do anything. He's powerless. He is helpless. Then Jesus comes in. Now, there's a multitude of sick people there. They're all over the place. Every one of them needs a miracle cure or they wouldn't be in the place. If they could just take an ointment from a doctor, that's what they'd be doing. But they're, while everybody else is out partying, these people, this multitude of sick people, impotent folk, it says, powerless people, they're just waiting for the angel to do something and hope they get in first. And they know the conditions of it. That, I'm sure that word spread. Why did he pick this man? Well, I, there's a Calvinist I like to read, <laughs> a great preacher. He said, uh, I will have mercy upon whom I'll have mercy and whom I will I harden us. So he makes this about election. God chooses, and I, but he would never have said at a whim. <laughs> I will admit that God chose this person, but I don't think it was a whim. Our Lord Jesus, I believe, looked out seeing the hearts of the people there and the condition and understanding everything about him, he picked the most helpless person in the house. That'd be my guess. I think that's what he did. He, he intended to give two gifts here. He intended to save this man's flesh, heal it from its impotency. And I believe he saved his soul, and I think we can prove that too. It proves it enough to me. So um, he saw him lying there. He knew 
See, we know that he knew because he says Jesus knew that he had been now a long time in this case. It doesn't say he knew how long, but he knew it was a long time. He could know anything he wanted to. And he speaks to him. Now, I've always tried to imagine that. This person is down on the ground. He's impotent. He can't move around. He can't do anything. He's miserable. He's been miserable for 38 years. Jesus comes in here. And I just always thought he's like speaking down to him. But as I consider it today, I don't, I don't think so. I think the Lord just kind of positioned himself where he knelt down or stooped and, or maybe sat and just looked at the man in the face. Don't you think that sounds more like Jesus, that he gets quite personal with folks? I think he's looking at him. The man sitting there in his continuous state of misery. And he sees this man looking at him. I bet that didn't happen too much. I bet somehow other people may have known that sin or at least claimed that sin had caused him. To, he didn't have any man, we read, that would help him. And now here comes a man. And he's looking at him. And he asks him the question, wilt thou be made whole? I wonder if that's ever even been asked of anybody else in that multitude, ever. Are you willing to be made whole? I mean, the answer would be so obvious why I even ask the question. Of course, that's why they're there is to be made whole. Why the Lord asked it, I can only speculate. But I do know that the Lord, contrary to some people's opinion, does not force his, uh, his grace on anybody. It is up to you, ultimately. You can't save yourself, but you can resist the Holy Ghost. You can resist it to your death. That's what it's going to take, too, because Jesus said, And I, if I be lifted up the, from the world, I will draw all men unto me. Jesus draws everybody to himself. But as Stephen said to those Pharisees of his day, Ye do always resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers did, so do ye. It's a human condition. We, uh, we need to be careful when the Lord deals with our heart to not resist Him, but to let Him work that perfect work in us. Not just as lost people, but as saints of God. We need to be particularly attentive to what He sends through the Holy Spirit. Because it is Jesus talking to us. He said he should not speak of himself. Whatever I give him, that's what he's going to speak. It's Jesus talking to us. I know I've said that before, but I think that's just an amazing thing that Jesus talks to us through the Spirit of God. Wilt thou be made whole? You think that person would just say, well, of course, you know, or, or something like that. He doesn't even answer the question. He is, there's something, and this is what, kind of got all over me as I tried to preach it. I don't know if it'll get over me tonight, but it's like uh, he is so 38 years of misery has made him such that there's not a hope in his heart of ever being healed despite the fact that he's at the pool where the angel heals the first one in. He tells the reason. It's like an excuse. It's as though this man that 
appears and asks him, will you be made whole? And he, he's like, he's given a reason why he won't be. He says, I have no man. The impotent man answered him, sir, I, I have no man. When the water is troubled to put me in the pool. And then he's got a miffed at his neighbors. But while I'm coming, another steps in before me. Maybe he was able to crawl a little bit, but he could never get in as quick as someone that had a friend that could plop him in there quick. I think he's as much as saying, I mean, he's not even, he's not even saying, yes. I mean, think about the, you know, just in chapter four, uh, Jesus goes to the, to the well at Sychar and the Samaritan woman there, and he tells her about living water. And, she, and he, he doesn't talk too much before she says, sir, give me this water that I don't have to ever come here again to draw. And then, and, and in just, uh, I think it's another chapter, he's talking to people that he had fed a multitude of up on a, on a mountain during one of the sermons. And then they follow him the next day. And he says, you know, you're only here because, because of the bread. You just want to eat. You're not interested in the, in the sermons or the miracles or any of that. You're, it's all physical with you. So he begins to, and they ask. They ask the question. Uh, so, you know, he says, labor not uh, for the meat that perishes, for, but for that which, which endureth unto everlasting life. And they ask a perfect question. They say, what is the work of God that we may do? It? And he says, this is the work of God that you believe upon him whom he hath sent. And he starts talking about that he is the bread that has come down from heaven for the life of the world. And they say, sir, evermore, give us this bread. Now, whether they understood that or not, at least their response was quick. And they believed enough to say, that's what I want. That's what I want. And he says, will you be made whole? And he says, I can't. I never can. I think he has, I think he has become so, um, he has no hope in his heart. None. He is hopeless. He is helpless. He is hopeless. He is, of all men, most miserable in his physical, and I think in his heart, because of a knowledge that sin had brought. He's like, He's probably thinking, this came upon me because of what I did, and, and it's what ought to be going on to me. You know, as a lost person, I eventually felt that way. This, I, I'm like this because of my sins, and, it, and it's right that I should be this way. Now, that's the Holy Spirit working in a heart, teaching it right from wrong, teaching what the real truth is about your lost condition. Some of you lost here, perhaps. There might be, I'm not seeing faces, but it doesn't really matter. If there's a heart here that's lost or doesn't know they're saved, sin got, got you where you are. Maybe not a particular sin, maybe not a life full of sin, but the wages of sin is death. And, and this man felt, he's like he was, he just smelled of death, I would think. There was nothing but, he was like barely alive. And, and he is hopeless. He feels his hopelessness. He feels that it's deserved, I think. I can't say that for sure. The text doesn't say it, but I think it infers it by his 
Very strange and hopeless answer or response, I should say. Wilt thou be made whole? Now here we have helplessness to the extreme degree. No hope. And then, I want you to consider who he's looking at. There was an angel that came by at a certain time and would stir the waters. And whoever got in first. But here we have the angel of the covenant. The messenger, it means the same thing. Christ, the, the angel of the Lord who appears so many times in the Old Testament. Here he is face to face with this man, living and breathing and asking him, will you make whole? And he has all the power and infinitely more than that angel who he had sent to the pool at certain seasons. And in mercy, in the house of mercy, Mercy himself speaks the words like a, a thunderbolt from God. And he says, rise and take up your bed and walk. <laughs> and in the, in the words spoken by the word of God made flesh. This man rises and he takes up his bed and he walks and he is made whole. Now we don't read that later he makes him more whole. We read, <laughs> I'm going to take you forward to two chapters, I think. When Jesus is back at Jerusalem and these uh, Pharisees, they have not forgotten what he did at that feast. They were really angry at him for breaking the Sabbath day, for having the audacity to heal someone when he ought to be just sitting around twiddling their thumbs like I guess they did. And he has this, he has this question of him. He says, uh, I have done one work. He's talking about this man. That's what he's done. It won't be long until he heals a blind man from birth <laughs> right in front of him too. I've done one work, and you all marvel. Moses therefore gave unto you circumcision, not because it's of Moses, but of the fathers. And, and ye on a Sabbath day, you, you circumcise a man. If a man on a Sabbath day receives circumcision, that the law of Moses should not be broken. Are you angry at me because I made a man every whit whole on the Sabbath? Judge not according to appearance, but judge righteous judgment. Now, can you imagine if Jesus had only healed this man's body, if he would have later had declared to have made him every whit whole? <laughs> I, I, I don't know how, that could, how the Lord would see him whole if he was dead in his heart. I mean, can you really hear Jesus? Oh, I made him absolutely whole, but... I mean, he's going to hell. No, this man was saved. He was saved by Jesus. I, in, in the very rise, and, and you know, and it's, it's interesting too, just back in the context of where, where it is. In that same chapter, while he's talking to these very people who later on are, have never forgotten what he did and they're mad at him for it, they, they seek to slay him for having been merciful in the place of mercy. 
in this chapter, talking to these critics of his actions, is where he says, uh, the day, or the, where it is, the hour is coming, verse 25 of our same chapter, and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. This man was dead in his heart. And he was practically dead in his body for all intents and purposes. He had no hope. It reminds me of the place where it says that uh, we Gentiles, you know, we were uh, without hope. You know, having no hope and without God in the world. It's as though he was looking on the whole Gentile world when he saw this hopeless person. And he said unto him, rise one day. He'll say, rise to all the bodies that are in the graves. All, all the way back. And I've already mentioned it, but I, I, I can't hardly not think about that. And the graves are going to burst open like they did. It is resurrection and people are going to come forth. And they're going to be judged upon principles of righteousness by that one whom God hath ordained, Jesus Christ. You know... I think about him, a sign and a wonder. He, he, he walks on the water. He gets in a boat and he, he rebukes winds and waves and they bid to his power. And that's, a pay, that's very impressive. He turns a little bit of fish and bread into enough to feed multitudes of people. And that's very impressive. But here we see the heart of God seeking out the most miserable person he could find. The whole town's partying. And he found one person that there's no party left in him. There's nothing in him but profound sorrow, sadness. He's impotent in body and he's impotent in heart and soul. He is utterly wretched. And with a word... Jesus completely reverses every bit of that. Now, if you could see that sign and that wonder that he did, a wonder of, of power, a wonder of love and compassion and, and grace against one who had sinned against him, probably some grievous sin. And you're lost. You need to understand he hasn't afflicted your body that way, but your heart, your, your self, your, your, your being is in just as much trouble as his was. You need mercy. You need, you need forgiveness from the one that you have offended even though you do not deserve it. The only one that could be merciful to you is the one that you offended. I mean, you could offend your, your parents and you guys could get spanked or whatever. And, or, or you could offend your wife or you could offend your husband or you could offend your friend. And for whatever offense that was, they may or may not be merciful to you. It's the offended party. But when it comes to the issue of eternal life or death, of going to heaven or going to hell, of, you know, the things that truly matter. David said, against thee and against thee only have I sinned and done this 
great evil in thy sight. We have offended God. And only God can forgive it. Only God can be merciful in any way that, that can help you. But the good news is, He is merciful. He is merciful. He is merciful on hard cases. He is merciful upon people. I mean, you know, I've heard the testimonies of some of you who have sought for years and years. And I mean, I can't, I, I would not have had the strength to do that. I may have been old when I got saved, but I had not sought for years. I sought for maybe three weeks. <laughs> but, uh, and I can see reaching a point, having come up and cried and, and, and wept and pleaded and prayed and, and studied or tried to live better or, or all the things people do to, to get God to, to hear them. Except letting the Spirit break your heart, letting God do the work. But, but you've tried. And you reach a point of saying, and I, how many times have I heard it since I've been here in Bowling Green? Almost every testimony includes it. We talked about it last night. It's kind of like, I just gave up. I just, I, I just gave up. And right then is when he saved. Well, this man had given up. Who knows when he had given up? He had no hope. But hope came walking down that day to him. And he fixed him right up. He says, immediately the man was made whole. He took up his bed. He walked. And he did it on the Sabbath day. And all the Pharisees <laughs> roared and thundered. But, but Jesus found him afterwards. And he says, behold, thou art made whole. Sin no more. And isn't that what he says to every one of us that he saves? Now, we do sin. It's it's just a condition that we've got. That doesn't excuse it. And don't think that we're going to somehow or other, God just says, oh yeah, that's okay. We can't sin so that grace abounds. God forbid. Our lives will be better and happier and far more useful to the Lord if every day when we wake up, we start praying to God that he keep us from sin. I have sinned many times since I've, I'll probably, I'll probably sinned who knows how many times today. Things unbidden come to mind. But I try not to. I try not to. I think most of you probably do too. We need to remember to pray down the help of God to prevent it because we're too weak. We're too impotent to live such a life on our own strength. In fact, the Lord specifically says, without me, you can do nothing. You know, without the Lord, this man couldn't even give a good answer to an obvious question. Will you be made whole? Uh, <laughs> uh, no, <laughs> I can't. I can't be made whole. You know, whatever that answer was, it wasn't a, it's just a response. Without Jesus... He died like that. He died in his sins. Without Jesus, I would have died in my sins. Without Jesus, you would have died in your sins. If you're lost without Jesus, you, when you die, you'll die in your sins. He's the only one that can have mercy upon you. But it is mercy. And he will 
abundantly pardon. I love that passage. I needed abundant pardoning from God. I love passages uh, like in Romans where he says that he, and, you know, you, you guys use that up here in Bowling Green more than I've heard it used anywhere else, but he will save to the uttermost those that come to God by him. The uttermost is without limit. <laughs> Total salvation. Save from anything to the greatest thing. I mean, there, I mean you, it, it encompasses all things. He will save to the uttermost those that come to God by him. There's only way to only one way to go to God is by this, this very person. This, this, uh, he himself was sent by God and he came from God to be a sign and a wonder to this world. He said it's the only sign that's left. Uh, you know, the sign of the prophet Jonas and he's talking about his own death, burial, and resurrection for the life of the world. He said, uh, Start then into this present day. An evil, an adulterous generation seeks after a sign. But yet he gives us one so that we can believe. Except you see signs and wonders, you won't believe. If you don't see Jesus as a miracle worker, as someone that can fix you, you can never wholeheartedly look to him for help. You'll, at best, it'll be half-hearted. It will be weak. It won't do. I can't, I can hardly imagine how, how a person, can, do you read any faith in this man in his response? He must have had something, but it was far smaller than a grain of mustard seed. I guarantee you that. It don't take much to, it says with a, if it were as big as a mustard seed, you could move mountains, but alas, we don't have it. It's not required to be saved. You just have to believe that he is, and that he rewards those who diligently seek. You seek him until you find him. What a wonderful Savior. What an amazing person. I am amazed at what he reveals of himself through his actions. The more I see it, as the Spirit gives me knowledge as I read it in the Old Testament, just like I do in the New. He's ever the same. And I see somehow through the Spirit in the very heart of God. I marvel at how perfectly He is suited to help us. He is precisely what we need. There's a place, it's in Isaiah, I forget the chapter, where he talks about how, how, how he hath made me a polished shaft and, and put me in his quiver. It's as though God took someone and, and made them the perfect weapon against all of his enemies. And his enemies are death and hell and the grave. A polished arrow would be one that you took particular attention to craft perfectly and balance exactly right. Get all the fletches right. Make the broadhead. I mean, where when it flies, it flies true. He had just got through in that passage of Isaiah saying, it's too light of a thing for you to, to bring Israel 
I'm going to send you for a light to the Gentiles so that you may be my salvation to the whole world. And he's made me a polished shaft. And, and that's what he is. He's like God's secret weapon. Kind of secret until 2,000 years ago when he burst onto the scene with signs and wonders and grace and mercy that he has yet to this day. Now, I feel him here now. He's here in this house now. While he's here, mercy is here. There is every reason to believe that if you will pour out your heart to God tonight here, that Jesus will have mercy on you. That's, that's what it's all for. He, he did all that he did. He suffered all that he suffered for you. I mean, I, for me, for each of us. Let's not waste. Don't waste what he did. Don't count the blood that he shed as an unholy thing. It's holy. He, he saves us by, he sanctifies us by, he, by, by his pouring out of himself. It's like the woman who touched the hem of his garment and he said, I felt virtue go out of me. Something in Christ comes from his person to you. What do you I'm, I'm not making that up. And you are forever changed. And you are forever blessed. And I don't mean, I mean forever and ever and ever. He says, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. God bless you all. If there's someone here lost, and brother, if you get us a, a song, I'd beg you to come here and seek the Lord. If you can remember from the other night, the passage in Hosea. It says, break up the fallow ground. Your heart's hard. You would have been saved if your heart was not hard. And it'd be just the, the little bit of gospel been preached here as poorly as it's been presented. There's plenty of enough of Christ being preached for you to be saved. There's no more message that's required, but a hard heart won't receive it. Hosea said, break up the fallow ground, it means of your heart, for it is time to seek the Lord until he rain righteousness upon you. That's getting saved.